This week on the programme, we're shining a light on two very different businesses and two very different entrepreneurs who are nevertheless joined by a profound interest in and real passion for consumer advocacy, doing business with purpose and a belief in challenging and permanently changing the status quo. We're welcoming back to the programme the co-founder of an innovative creative agency that's recently added another compelling element to its founding commitment to build brands that people wish existed. After we hear from him, we'll learn how a US entrepreneur is making a success of changing the narrative around mortgages and proving that even those sectors with pretty entrenched behaviours and biases can and can quickly be shown to benefit from some constructively disruptive behaviour from new entrants. This is The Entrepreneurs, with me, Tom Edwards. We start this week with Niels Leonard, a familiar voice on Monocle 24 and this show, as one of the co-founders of the award-winning Uncommon Creative Studio, which recently scooped campaigns Creative Agency of the Year Prize for the second year running. Niels has more recently been part of an initiative that builds on Uncommon's own passion to build brands that people wished existed by partnering on the Unrest Accelerator programme, which is also backed by Cedars, the highest grossing European equity crowdfunding platform, and B Corp, the leading certifying body for sustainable business practices. Unrest has already had successes, with the pilot programming launching a selection of ambitious early stage companies ready to make a real impact. Unrest is committed to investing in diverse founders and teams that better reflect the society in which we all live. Niels Leonard, welcome back to Monocle. Good to see you again. Thank you. And I guess, well, let's just catch up a little bit, first of all, with Uncommon. You've spoken to Monocle before about that, of course, your creative studio, ticking towards the five-year birthday a little later this year. That's my opening gambit. Five years. Can you believe it? Has it gone fast? Has it gone slow? Have you aged? Is it bestowing upon you new youth? <laughs> How's it treating you <laughs> nearly five years in? Yeah, I wear it like an albatross. No, it's, uh, my hair's changed colour completely. That is definitely the truth. I look at all these optimistic, hopeful photos of me about five years ago and I'm not that person anymore. But that said, it has gone, it has gone really fast. I don't know, for anyone listening who talks about starting a business, I know everybody says it goes fast, but it's also thrilling and brilliant and proof that new things can work and all that other stuff that humans need so we feel really validated we're about 100 people now 110 people in Clerkenwell and you know working globally with clients so yeah it's it's good it's going well Um, and what about that idea of the challenge then of scaling something that is successful because presumably you get pulled in lots of different directions you probably find lots of new people who suddenly say hey you can help me out a little bit do you have to be very disciplined about not moving too fast do you have to retain actually though conversely some of that early fearlessness and not forget how to make leaps into the unknown is that a bit of a balancing act as a creative studio our fear is is when we started basically it's not it sounds weird it's not hard to scale an ad agency you can just pick up clients it's hard to scale an ad agency and make continually brilliant work And, you know, we've always been a creative studio versus just an ad agency. And as a result, we make all sorts of stuff from a feature with Nick Cave through to art pieces and all of the above. What's terrifying to us now is when you've got that early urgency and you have a very clear vision, you know, our vision's always around building brands that people wish existed. That's what we try to do. It means you make a certain sort of work at a certain level. You're trying not to be pollutive. You know, you're trying not to contribute to the gigabyte landfill of crap ads. That's fine for two years because your, your urgency and your energy are fueled by the new company and you're like, oh my God, we can't let ourselves down. Five years in, 100 people, 
you realize people come on board and they have their version of you. And you must try really, really hard every time still to make sure they understand what Uncommon's really about. That's been our task. And so new clients and new people that join, we are still very, very ferocious around making sure we explain exactly what we're about and, and the level that we play at. I think that's really interesting. And I'm sure that will resonate actually with lots of people who've scaled, as you say, particularly creative businesses that have a bit of that X factor that can't just be something that's entered on a on an Excel sheet. I'm really interested in this idea, as you say, of, you know, brands that people wish existed. There's something very powerful about the purpose that is in that, both from your side and from the brands that you work with and are trying to kind of fashion together. And the sort of intentionality, that's this sort of buzzword. What do you understand by building a brand with real purpose? Because I think lots of we, we have it with greenwashing and lots of companies that try and present these sort of ESG boxes that they're ticking. But real purpose is something different to that. What does that kind of mean? And we can maybe talk a little bit about unrest in a minute and how... No, I love what, this conversation. What, what that yeah. means. But what, what, what does it mean to you to do something with purpose? It can't just presumably be an attitude you hold in your head. It's got to mean something in terms of the day-to-day of the business. For sure. Right? I think it's very tangible. I mean, look, there's a lot of guff, particularly in my game, maybe more than yours, talked about purpose. <laughs> what journalism? I don't know. No, no, but, you know, it's, but it's, it's hilarious. And, and the truth of purpose, which I, I, you know, think is really interesting. Daniel X got a great quote, isn't he, from Spotify, which is, the value of a company is literally dictated by the level and scale of the problems it solves. And I just thought that was excellent. But the truth of purpose that we found was all these conversations we're having with our clients trying to find theirs and what they're about. When COVID happened and the pandemic happened, you saw a load of brands that reacted to it and knew exactly what they were going to do. And you saw a load of brands that just sat on the shelf and went, um, that's purpose. Purpose is nothing more than knowing why you get up every day and what you're going to do when the shit hits the fan. And I think that's a real indicator of whether you have a purpose or not. So we work with all sorts of brands and it's not The important thing to say there is it's never just about the environment, actually. It can be all sorts of of ways of mattering in the world. Ultimately, it was kicked off by this question I was asked before we started Uncommon, which was, how do we go... And this is a client who asked me this, and he asked me it in a pitch, by the way, which is very cunning of him, you know, to put the hook in my mouth. He said, "Um, Nils, how do I go from being a brand that sells crap to people to being a brand that people wish existed? And I thought, God, that's a brilliant question. You know, how do you? What does that mean? What does a brand like that do? How does it behave? How does it employ? And then, of course, I thought, well, never mind you. How do I do that? Name an agency or creative studio that the real world wishes existed. And I thought, well, that's something we should try and have a pop at. Lots of been a fly on the wall in that one. Was it 10 minutes later? He was like, Nails, Nails, answer to my question. Oh, sorry, sorry. Well, no, sorry. 10 minutes later, he was like, yeah, can I have some programmatic <laughs> banners selling a car, please? I was like, well, that's not the same thing, is it? Let's let's come sort of more up to date then. And I mentioned Unrest just in passing. What is it? It's kind of a startup accelerator. It sits kind of with you guys in the same, well, in the same building, I think. Yeah, yeah, is that right? That's right. Unrest, elevator pitch. Yeah, what what so, is it exactly? So, well, we started out at Uncommon with a, with a view to create brands as well as working with them. And we managed to make a couple of them. Halo Coffee, which you guys have very kindly talked about before on this show. But it wasn't quick enough for us and it was starting to kill us that our ability to put these brands into the world and to grow them as well as trying to influence our clients was just too slow. So we met a gentleman called Orr Vinegold and his crew and we started Unrest, which is an accelerator based around purpose-driven brands. And the point of that is to wake up one day and go, okay, look at this roster of maybe 50 to 100 brands that we've helped birth. And of course, some of those will be successful and some won't. But all of them will try to matter in the world and make a dent, create new conversations and, and really address, I suppose, the imbalances that's happening in business. You know, when you look at business in particular, something like, this is ridiculous, but something like, you know, VC share of capital, it's like 5% or something goes to female fronted 
businesses. It's tiny. You know, so the unrest cohort at the moment, 91% are mixed teams or female. Black-owned businesses make up 45% of the current cohort. So it's not just the sort of purpose-driven businesses and, and the, the products they're making. It's also how they're formed. It's the nature of their makeup and, and the conversations they're creating. And that's the sort of stuff we wanted to do. So really exciting. And do you find that ostensibly making the extra effort, and I do the air quote marks there, you actually discover that doing things this way, working with female businesses, businesses that are BAME founded, actually, it's easier. It works better. They're more profitable. They're yeah. more successful more of the time. Does that prompt you to ask, again, this, this very fundamental question is like, why is this not just the, the standard is it too soon to have any, <laughs> no, I, any answer to that question? No, no. I mean, being honest, Uncommon is still, strangely, I mean, I started Uncommon with Lucy and, and Natalie, as you know. We're still one of the only majority female-fronted creative studios in Europe. And you go, that's insane. So, so no, it's not. And, and, you know, we're all talking about, I guess, race and equality, and we're talking about all these issues now. Ten years ago, we were just uncovering the fact that the majority of management in, in the UK was male. You know, we're still not over that. And so I think we must just keep pushing at it. It's one of those things where your body language just needs to be woken up every day to remind you to widen the aperture. And I think particularly speaking to that as well in, in a creative sense, the creative industry in the UK is very, very white and very, very male still. And that's that's a massive frustration to me because some of the best, most original thinkers I've worked with are not, you know. And so I think it's just one of those things where you have to keep reminding yourself, your culture and your people that the world needs a little bit more of that difference and you have to poke at it. It's not there on a plate for you. That's the truth of it. I know we're talking about how easy it could be and how, you know, it makes a massive difference, but it isn't actually easy. And you have to go out and put a dent in things and change them. The other thing to say, sorry, just to lob in as well is, you know, there are fierce and clear competitive advantages to making your teams up differently, right? Because having worked with tons and tons of clients over the years, you see the same sort of people with the same sort of problems using the same language in every room. And ultimately, that gets tiring and kind of boring. And when you go hunting for those businesses that have a new energy or a new point of view, of course, that's made up by the lives they've lived. So the more diverse the people you work with, right, the more interesting your day is. That sounds horrendous, but it's true. And the more interesting the business is and the more unusual the ambition is. And I think that's something that goes missing too. Do you think that just in the five years of Uncommon and even in the what sort of not years, but sort of months almost of, of unrest, that the wider narrative, I don't want to use this cliched language, but it is also changing. So you already mentioned this idea of businesses trying to do greenwashing or to mm. talk about sustainability or inclusiveness. And you kind of wonder what they mean. Do you sense that if we're not at sort of inflection point, something's changing and the intention of businesses that are talking about this is different has that shifted even just in the last five years, do you think? Or, I don't know, do you still feel you confront lots of slow-moving, not no. Luddites exactly, but just, just people who are too unwieldy to get on board with yeah, doing no, something? It has shifted, and I'll tell you why, which I think is really interesting, is there's an assumption that everyone's just getting up to speed. I don't think that's true, you know, and there are still people writing articles, you know, in the ad industry, like I saw someone wrote a book the other day, which is, can we all stop talking about purpose and just carry on selling stuff? I was like, Jesus, okay. And, and I was just kind of like, okay, great, that's what the world needs. I think the truth is this, though, which is, and not enough people talk about this, which is never mind, you know, our theory and strategies from a distance around the sort of businesses we think should exist. Who do you want to work for? Think about brands as employer brands. And this is what's really changed, is I think as people are getting older, new generations are coming in, they're just waking up and going, I just don't want to work for assholes anymore. I don't want to work for people that don't care. I don't want to work for people that are just trying to sell stuff. And so all of that, I think, is really important. And ultimately, it's, it's the people who are going to work at these businesses that are going to change them or choose them, 
you know, and I think that's going to be the, the really exciting part of it all. That's going to force change. Well, yeah, and, and on a more sort of quotidian day-to-day mechanics, I guess that, again, that discussion has been reframed by the pandemic. You've alluded to it already. Mm. How difficult has that been? Because presumably, you know, a lot of these things are about your ability to share and develop a collective culture, which is very easy when you're all sat together and you have the serendipitous moments in an office and so forth. That's presumably been more difficult over the last two years in some respects. Has the workplace, those dynamics, changed forever in your view? Or do you think we're sort of, here come those air quotes again, getting back to normal? No, I think it's changed. I think, you know, there were some companies, by the way, who were using video calling and all that sort of stuff. They were doing it naturally before all of this and you know I think the truth is that a few of us are just caught up what I would say is that there's been a focus particularly in our company around I guess people choosing the shape of life they want far more than the type of job they want so you know a lot of my lot were like why am I living in a one-bedroom flat in Shoreditch I can live in a three-bedroom house in Brighton that sounds pretty nice and their ability to work and think from that distance has been greatly improved for creatives the distance has been very liberating you know interruption and crowds and an office actually get in the way sometimes of you making that leap and just that singular focus. I mean, being a horrendous employer, I noticed almost instantly that the work got far more considered. You know, all the decks we were seeing in meetings were suddenly like really diligent, really thought through. And I was like, holy shit, maybe this is good. (laughs) Because people were going away and they weren't interrupted by someone wanging on about the football. You know, it was like, oh my God. Of course, what then went missing was the energy. um, Well, I was going to ask you about this. And especially when you're bringing in people and when you have a particular approach yeah. to the intention of the business and your yeah. values. I'm again, yeah. a bit wishy-washy no, no. phrase, but I think we, we know what you mean by that. How do you ensure that people are on point with that? Look, we've, been, we've been mechanical about that stuff from the start. You know, there's a lot of talk of, of culture and it can seem a very soft and squishy and, you know, ethereal thing. And I actually think it's very tangible and it's quite fierce. And what I mean by that is there are a series of questions that we ask when we review work. There's the nature of the conversations and the candour which I think is an underused word and value in our industry. But all of these things make up uncommon. You know, the way we refer to each other, the questions we ask, the conversations we have, the way we refer to time. You know, we won't walk into a meeting and kind of endlessly wang on, hoping something good comes. We're going to go, right, we've got 45 minutes. Here's the output of this meeting. You know, we're quite ferocious about it. And these things, I think, make up your culture. Because I I think it's also, you know, a lot of industries have been very guilty of making, when they talk about culture, they're talking about, what's it like to work here? as opposed to what do we make? And I think you need a culture for both. I think it's quite easy to get some beanbags and a water slide and say you've sorted culture. That's not culture. And I'd argue sometimes comfort is the worst thing to create in a workplace. So I think that that actually having a culture around what we make is is also really important. But I think partly because of the pandemic, but every call we're on, we're asking those questions and setting that ambition. And then we're also following up with people, making sure they're all all right. You know, there are very uncommon values around how we all wanted to work and we didn't want to run you know that classic sort of agency sweatshop that we've all been exposed to previously yeah it's amazing the number of people you speak to who say no one had ever asked me how i was doing before even when they were seeing each other every day that's really important well part of the work um we've done with itv weirdly you know i don't know we sort of created a campaign for them called britain get talking which is the uk's most recognized mental health campaign ever now which is mad but what was crazy about it was it sounded almost moronically simple when we started, where they said, we just have to teach people to talk to each other and actually really listen. <laughs> and we were all like, what? It just sounds like, isn't there some you know massively potent question they can ask or isn't there some amazing workshop? And it was like, no, that's it. Just get people to talk to each other in an age of screens and mobiles and switching off and fear, get them to talk and actually listen. And that was amazingly powerful. 
you know, and that ability to, to hear people, I think, is also probably an underused quality. Niels Leonard. And unrest has also just opened in a second territory in the north of England after receiving funding from the UK government's levelling up plans, which aim to spread opportunity and prosperity throughout the nation. You can learn more about unrest and its early successes at unrest.world. And you can find out more about Niels and his colleagues at Uncommon Creative Studios by heading to uncommon.london. Well, next up, I want to share some learnings from a business on the other side of the pond that's taken exactly the type of steps that Nils has been talking about, challenging the status quo, the received wisdom, and in doing so, proving that even those sectors often characterised by small-c conservatism and a distinct resistance to change can be positively and profitably disrupted by sufficiently bold and brave brands. Nora Apsel's the founder and CEO of Morty, an online mortgage marketplace and licensed mortgage broker where home buyers can shop for, compare and close on a mortgage. Morty's shaken up the US mortgage market by putting consumers in control. Now, we heard briefly from Nora a few weeks ago on our sister show, Eureka, talking about Morty's launch in 2016 that she supervised alongside her three co-founders. She told us about getting started and about democratising this space. Here she is, with more on how she approached the sector with exactly the sort of consumer advocacy and purpose-driven approach that Niels was just talking about. I very much believe that the fundamental problem within the industry comes down to transparency and access to accurate real-time data. So the reason why customers and various third parties like realtors or homeowners insurance agents, title agents feel frustration is because it's very hard to know what's going on at a single point in time. So this gets to one of the really important sort of like central tenets of Morty, which is like providing accurate, transparent information on day one and continuing that through all the way to close. Because by and large, the industry still operates very much as a black box. You don't know why something costs what it does, and you don't know what the status of your transaction is at any time. And we've really hit at those issues by leveraging technology to provide transparency, accurate data, regular information, those types of things. Does that all make sense? It absolutely does. And I wonder if we can also flesh this out a little more by putting some numbers on it, because they're pretty striking. I know that it's you know still a relatively young company, of course, but Morty's already processed a pretty extraordinary number in dollar terms, in processing loans. I mean, I think that is important, right, to just convey to our listeners exactly the scale of what it is that you've achieved in a relatively short period of time. Yeah, you know, we're really proud of what we've built at Morty. I think one of the those central tenants around how we leverage technology is that technology is there to automate all of the parts of the process that should be automated. And then we have an amazing team behind the technology that's there for advice, guidance, counsel, right? And so the reason why we've been able to do the volume that we've done while still being relatively young and relatively small team is because you know we automate things like loan options. So typically when you go to get a mortgage, you have multiple interactions with a loan officer, either over email or over phone, before you can actually see on paper what your rate might look like. For us, you know, we just need about four pieces of information and you can get those numbers instantaneously. And so products like that are what allow us to do very high volume with a relatively small and young team. 
I just wonder if you can maybe tell us a bit more then about, I guess we talk about being customer focused. What what does the customer look like? I don't want you to, to force you into a, an unhelpful generalization, but I gather a pretty large proportion of this demographic are first time buyers. And we know, you know, this, this well, for most people indeed, that a mortgage might be the biggest single kind of transaction they're ever involved in in their entire lives. And of course, for first time buyers in particular, it's so fundamental to shaping their future. Was that always front of mind for you and your co-founders that you would be helping that specific demographic? And I guess you're building then into your business an understanding of how crucially important that is for people at that stage of their lives. Yeah, absolutely. So about half of our home buyers are first-time home buyers, and I think what you also get with new home buyers is the expectation of a digital experience and the desire to operate in a self-driven way. Traditionally, mortgage is very like person to person, and it's challenging for an individual who wants to self-operate to do that without constantly being on the phone or over email with somebody. So when we think about customer-centric and how we build our product, it's very much around building the self-driven mortgage experience so that people can operate on their own terms. And we can be available to them if they have questions and things like that, but all of the information that they need should be available digitally and they should be able to interact completely through our platform. It's funny, isn't it? That the idea that something that is customer centric is disruptive, it, it just maybe underscores how far down the wrong track the, the whole sector had potentially gone, because that seems to be exactly the way that these things should operate, of course. And just on that point, Nora, it's funny, you know, do you think that maybe some of this disruption, well, you've already spoken about coming from a nonprofit, which is sort of atypical in terms of what you're doing now. Also being from an engineering background, maybe rather than an explicitly financial background, also atypical. And the fact that, you know, you're now a female leader in fintech, which is also sadly still atypical. Did you always have it in you, do you think, to be a disruptor in this way? Or is it just something that you've kind of arrived at as you've followed your professional passions? Hmm. That's a super interesting question. I think for most of us out there, we are capable of doing more than what is in front of us today. And much of how people's careers and lives develop have to do with the opportunities that were presented to them. So I feel really fortunate to have founded this company with great co-founders and been able to grow both myself and the company together. I did not set out to be the CEO of a mortgage marketplace, but the truth is that it fits very well with a lot of my skill sets that sort of combine the humanistic nature from my nonprofit experience with the like analytical and operations focus attitude that I get from my engineering background. So I sort of combine those two and that has made me the leader and executive that I am today. It's an incredible story. Put it in some context for us in terms of the US. I know, well, I think I'm right in saying you, that Morty's now licensed in a pretty large number, quite a, quite a geographic sweep of, of states. And of course, if we take a little bit of the temperature of the housing market stateside, Nora, it's been pretty extraordinary in the last year. And of course, it has defied expectations in many ways, given what people were perhaps expecting the direction of travel to be in economic terms because of the pandemic and a host of other things. How are you looking strategically at what's ahead? Some amazing numbers. We talked about, you know, what, over a billion in loans processed and these astonishing revenue growth figures. What's the sort of model in terms of sustainable growth for the for the business? And how do you factor in 
volatility. We know that, you know, housing can be somewhat unpredictable, certainly over the last even just kind of 20 odd years. How do you and your colleagues make sense of that? And how do you plan to deal with, you know, humps in the road and other obstacles that might be coming your way? The first thing here is asking, how did the pandemic fundamentally change the mortgage landscape and consumers' behavior? You know, we saw this especially in 2020, but it grew even more in 2021. You know, people moved online to find real estate, right? People were increasingly comfortable using online platforms to identify the home that they wanted to purchase, to communicate with agents, and really like figure out what was next for them. The thing that comes after real estate, right, is mortgage. And so we also began to see the normalcy of transacting online to get your mortgage. Before that, that was not the norm. And it still is not the norm, but it's moving in the right direction. And I think that's the bigger thing that we're seeing here. We're seeing this real transition from people being okay with this like offline financial transaction to expecting it to be fully digital and online and being very confused when they're being asked to do something on the phone or in some kind of manual way. So, you know, Morty's been around for five years. We had been building this for a while, but when this like trend started happening, we were definitely well positioned to like be that digital solution that was also being the advocate for the customer. Where do you think we would be in, let's say five years from now, Nora, just to put a, a fairly arbitrary number on it. Let's say we're in these very chairs and we're talking to one another. What will be the key narrative? I'm sure some of those old perennials about interest rates and things which are preoccupying people at the moment, you know, soaring inflation, what have you, they're always kind of broiling away, aren't they, on the, on the, on the back burner. But do you think that in terms of big structural changes, you have a handle on what the big topics of the day might be, I don't know, around a half a decade from now? Well, I definitely can't see into the future. And there's a lot of different ways things can go as as we've all seen. I do think the way I would think about what the mortgage industry is going to look like in five years is think about the new customers that will be in the mortgage market in five years that are not in the mortgage market now and what those customers will demand and expect and how the industry will be forced to move to serve those customers properly. I don't believe that the status quo that has operated for so very long will continue to be acceptable. Do you think also then on this sort of other track about being customer focused, some of these emphases that you've put on throughout your career, but particularly now this idea of being, you know, more sort of mission driven, having this consumer advocacy piece as well. Do you think we're going to hit a point where that is no longer the exception, but becomes the rule? Because we're seeing it. I don't know if you look at investing, say more broadly, a lot of talk about sustainability and it's getting to the point now where there are many, particularly younger consumers, who want their whole portfolios to be sustainable and, and it's non-negotiable. And even some of these great behemoths, big wealth managers are having to, you know, quickly adapt to that sort of attitude. Are we heading the same way in the fintech space uh, as well? Because sometimes it's kind of discussed as a bit of a sort of wild west, but there are plenty of good principal businesses doing good, successful and socially responsible work. Is that could we could that be the norm do you think by the time i don't know if we had that this uh, fictitious five year out meeting i think if we were talking in 10 years yes i think it's but it's going to take some time because this industry is quite large and quite entrenched but i do believe we will get there 
Well, this is good. We like to strike an optimistic tone, or try to, even if the even if the time horizon's a little further out, Nora. Uh, Nora, tell me, what about the, the sort of transferability of this model in other markets? And I, again, I don't want to preempt or or get you to gaze back into that crystal ball that we know you you've said you know you don't have. But you know, do you think that Morty could parachute into I don't know the UK? I know there's a whole host of regulatory concerns, but. Because it is based on these fundamental principles of serving the consumer better, challenging the old way of doing things, do you, do you think that it has a, I don't know, a transportability? Is it, does it have a geographic flexibility beyond the US? And is that something that excites you potentially down the track? So I think the concept of Morty, of creating a marketplace that is sort of a single point of access into a market that allows customers to transparently transact and understand what their options are. I think that concept is transferable to pretty much every and any industry. And we see similar types of companies in a variety of different industries. So in that way, I do. The mortgage industry is very different in every single country. And the UK has some really interesting mortgage innovators right now, who I think are trying to tackle the same challenges that Morty is looking to tackle. Nora Apsel, founder and CEO of Morty. You can learn more about Nora and her colleagues and their work at Morty.com. But that's all for this week. This programme was mixed and edited by Jack Dewars. My thanks to him, as always. And of course, thanks once again to Niels and the Uncommon and Unrest teams and to Nora Apsel and her gang at Morty. Listen again and find out more about the entrepreneurs at monocle.com or follow us and catch up with the extensive archive via your preferred podcast platform. I'm Tom Edwards. Goodbye and thanks for listening to The Entrepreneurs. The Entrepreneurs.